Good morning. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We acknowledge that you are a holy God. We are a sinful people. We deserve nothing but your wrath and your judgment. And yet you in your tender mercy have visited us. You sent your son to die for our sins that we might become your children. And so we pray, O God of our salvation, that as we study your word, you would impress uh, this glorious gospel deeper and deeper in our hearts. We pray for those in this room who do not know you. We pray that today would be the day that they would have their eyes opened to your mercy and to your grace. We ask all this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We at First Baptist have been uh, making our way through the gospel of Luke. And this morning, uh, Lord willing, we are going to cover uh, a relatively uh, large chunk of text for us. Uh, verses 57 through 80 in Luke 1. Now remember where we are in terms of the narrative. Uh, Luke starts off his gospel uh, by presenting two parallel accounts. You've got the events leading up to the birth of John the Baptist, and you've got the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. And so Luke starts with the angel Gabriel uh, appearing to a, a childless priest named Zechariah, telling him that he and his barren wife, Elizabeth, were going to bear a child in their old age. And that child was going to be John, John the Baptist, the one who would go before the Messiah as the frontrunner. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Then the scene shifts because six months later, this same angel Gabriel appears to a young unmarried teenage virgin named Mary, and he tells her that she would conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that child, of course, would be Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, both fully God and fully man, uh, the Messiah who would rule and reign forever. And then you'll remember how in the next scene, uh, these two threads come together. Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and she goes to visit Elizabeth because that was the sign that the angel Gabriel gave to her that all of this stuff was really happening, that her relative Elizabeth was also pregnant. And so Mary goes with haste to Zechariah and Elizabeth's house in the hill country of Judah, and as soon as they greet one another, John, in his mother Elizabeth's womb, he leaps for joy. And then Elizabeth herself bursts into joyful praise. Why has it been granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then Mary gets in on the rejoicing. She gives us the Magnificat, right? her song of praise. That's that indented section in your Bibles from verses 46 to 55. Uh, she highlights God's greatness, both in who he is and what he does. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And you'll remember how that section ends. Look at verse 56. Mary remained with her 
about three months and returned to her home. So do the math. Verse 36 tells us that when Gabriel appeared to Mary, Elizabeth was in her sixth month of pregnancy. Mary heads over right away. She stays for three months, right? Six plus three means that Elizabeth is ready to give birth any day now. And that's where we pick it up in verse 57. And so today we're going to cover the story of the birth of John. So let me read the entire text. We're going to talk about what it means, how we can apply this word to our lives. This is the word that God has for you all today, starting in Luke 1:57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. They all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. If you had to characterize God's interactions with his people in one word, what word would you choose? Whatever your answer is, I think if you were to make a list, mercy has to be at the top of that list somewhere. Psalm 119, 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. You remember all the way back in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses gets the new set of the Ten Commandments because he broke the first set with the whole golden calf thing. Well, in the context of that passage... Look at what God says. This is how God describes himself. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Like God is an infinitely glorious God. And so there's quite literally an endless number of his glorious attributes that he could draw our attention to. But here he specifically points out his mercy. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That description of God is repeated pretty much word for word in the Old Testament seven times. It's like the go-to extended description of God's character in the Old Testament. Our God is a merciful, mercy-filled God. He shows love and he shows kindness to unworthy and undeserving people, people who deserve death and judgment, but are instead shown favor And so as we go through our passage, right, I want you to have that in mind, that God is a merciful God, because it's a common theme that we're going to see over and over and over in different ways in our story, right? God's mercy to undeserving people. Let's start at the beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Elizabeth, she who was called barren, She and Zechariah now finally get the son for whom they've been praying for so many years. Look at how Luke specifically draws our attention to the fact that God always keeps his promises. Remember what Gabriel told Zechariah when Zechariah doubted? Look at verse 20. You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Well, now Luke is drawing our attention to that fact that God's promises are all fulfilled in their time. Look at verse 13, right? This is God through the angel Gabriel promising Elizabeth will bear you a son. And now look at verse 57. She bore a son. He intentionally uses the same phrasing to draw our attention to the fact that God always keeps his promises. Verse 14, many will rejoice at his birth. Look at verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And of course, if God is going to keep those promises, then we're anticipating, even as we're reading the chapters to come, that God's surely going to keep the rest of those promises that he made as well. That the child would be great before the Lord, that he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, that he would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God has kept his promises to Zechariah and Elizabeth, which is not surprising at all because God always keeps his promises. But Luke makes it very clear how we're to understand all of this, right? This whole story going back to Gabriel first appearing to Zechariah in the temple, telling him that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to bear this child in their own age, and then now that son being born. How are we to understand all of this? Verse 58, her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. It's interesting in the context of this chapter, right, what we've been studying in this chapter Uh, The word there for shown great, as in the Lord has shown great mercy to her, it's actually the same exact word that Mary uses in the Magnificat when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And so we could even say, the Lord has magnified mercy to Elizabeth. 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, has indeed shown great, abundant, magnified mercy to Elizabeth. So the first picture of God's mercy that we see here in our passage is God's mercy to Elizabeth. Oftentimes we think of God's mercy in the context of our salvation, and we're going to get to that, of course. But God's mercy here to Elizabeth, maybe we can say more basic or even more earthly. It's his gracious favor shown to an old childless couple who had carried with them decades of this social stigma and this shame for their barrenness. That's exactly how Elizabeth understood it. Look at verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. God looked on her and took away her reproach. He allowed her to conceive. He knitted that baby together in his mother's womb. He allowed the son to be safely born. And as her neighbors and relatives come to rejoice with her, her reproach is now a thing of the past. It was plain even to them that the Lord had shown great magnified mercy to her. Now, maybe you think, well, that seems kind of earthly to think of something as common as childbirth as being a, a great mercy from God. But friends, when we realize who we are, right, vile sinners who've broken the laws of a holy God through our sin, and we realize that the just penalty for sin is death, the soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. When we realize that we deserve nothing but God's wrath and judgment and condemnation. And then we look at all the good gifts that God has given us. And I'm not even talking about spiritual things like salvation. Again, we're going to get to that later. I'm talking about like earthly things, like bearing children and marriage and food and shelter and relationships, friendships, jobs and laughter and and recreation. And it's like, wow, God has magnified his mercy towards me and all of those things. I deserve death and judgment. And he's given me the gift of marriage? Husbands and wives, when you see your spouse, do you recognize them as a kind mercy from a merciful God? I'm a wretched sinner, and yet he's given me the joys of parenting? Parents, when you look at your children... Do you recognize them as a kind mercy from God? The sun and the rain. He makes his sun rise on the evil. He sends rain on the unjust. That's us. Even life-sustaining weather is given to us by mercy. How about this one? Even our ministries. 2 Corinthians 4.1. They're by the mercy of God. Of God. Understanding this truth then shapes how we see the entirety of our lives. James 1.17, every good and every perfect gift is from above. 1 Corinthians 4.7, what do you have that you did not receive? Once you begin to see yourself as deserving, 
deserving of the food that you have or uh, the home that you live in or the job that you have or the ministry in which you serve or in Elizabeth's case, the child she would bear, then we no longer view it as a kind mercy from a merciful God, but instead something that we in our righteousness are entitled to. And at that point, we begin to rob God of his glory. Our first picture of God's mercy in this passage is God's mercy to Elizabeth. And I think think it serves us all as a reminder to see everything that we've been given as a gracious, merciful gift from a gracious and merciful God. So picture the scene here in your mind's eye. This is a joyful time, right? This is a time to celebrate. You take the normal joy, uh, like a child being born, it's like, like the baseline joy. It's people bringing gifts, uh, meal trains, and everybody wants to hold the baby. And, oh, let me take a picture with your baby. Now add to that the fact that it's Elizabeth. She was called barren. Like surely some of these neighbors and relatives have been praying for her, like, like in decades past, had counseled her on her struggles in this regard. This is a joyful time. This is a celebration. So they're all gathered together. As good and faithful Jews, they were going to circumcise John on the eighth day. But you know from life experience that there is no perfect party. Because you know when your friends and your family, like people whom you genuinely love and they genuinely love you, and they're sincerely trying to be helpful, but really they're just being annoying. Like they're not trying to be. They're not even aware of it. But it's like, like thank you, but, but please Stop. The person who insists on washing all of your dishes and then putting them all in the, the wrong places. The person who, like when you're moving, who takes everything out of the box that you were going to put into storage. You know what I mean. That's what we have here. Right? We've got these friends. We've got these neighbors. They, they gather to rejoice with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Surely they have the purest of intentions. Let's give him the name Zechariah. After his father. I mean, dad's been through a lot these last nine months. He hasn't spoken at all. Let's, let's give him dad's name. And Mary's like, no, no, no. He's going to be called John. Presumably, sometime in the past nine months, she's learned from Zechariah everything that the angel Gabriel told him, including, of course, the baby's name. But this is where the neighbors and relatives go from being sincere to annoying. Uh, none of your relatives is called by this name. Mary's answer in the Greek is as emphatic as it gets. It's like, absolutely not. He shall be called John. But look at how they just completely disregard what she says. They go to Zechariah. As if to say, listen, Elizabeth, we, the the council of your friends and neighbors, we are going to overrule you on this one. Let's see what your husband has to say. So they go to Zechariah. You say, well, where where has he been this whole time? remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that Elizabeth was going to bear a son? Remember how Zechariah was initially filled with doubt? We're too old. My wife's too old. That's what happens. Verse 20, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. Zechariah has not spoken a word in nine months. But the neighbors go to him and they make signs like, which means one of two things either Zechariah is both unable to speak and hear 
right? So that's why they have to make signs to him. Or they just assume he can't hear because he can't speak. We don't know. But either way, they ask him, what's the name of this baby going to be? We're not going to take your wife's word for it. What's the name of your son going to be? And so he writes on this tablet, his name is John. Not his name should be John, or even his name will be John. His name is John. Like it's been John since God, through the angel Gabriel, told me so nine months ago. And by this point, Zechariah knows not to go against God's word. I don't care what any of you think his name should be. I'm going to go with what God says. His name is John. Let's stop at this point to just consider the second picture of God's mercy here. That's God's mercy to Zechariah. So I don't see anything in this passage about God's mercy to Zechariah. Do you mean that he too, like in his old age, was able to conceive a son? Well, that is a mercy of God that his wife was able to conceive in their old age. We've already talked about that. But there's a greater mercy going on here. I mean, consider what's happened with this guy. 400 plus years of silence. God has not spoken since the days of the prophet Malachi. Yet this extended period of silence, and then all of a sudden, God sends his angel Gabriel to deliver this wonderful message to Zechariah in the temple of the Lord. God's plan of salvation is going to be put into motion, and it's going to start with you. It's going to start with your wife giving birth to the forerunner. What does Zechariah do? With what should be this like historically glorious moment, he completely drops the ball. Right? He does not believe. He doubts. You did not believe my words. But here's the thing. This is not like dropping the game-winning touchdown pass. Like, ah, don't worry about it, man. You'll, you'll get him next time. Now, for that sin of unbelief, not believing a holy God's words, Zechariah deserves death. Like if God were to have struck him dead on the spot, like Ananias and Sapphira style, or consumed him with fire from the altar, like Nadab and Abihu, or even split open the ground and swallowed him up like Korah and his friends, we'd have to say, well, God is holy. God judges sin. The judge of all the earth is going to do what's right. Because remember, the wages of sin is death. But God doesn't strike Zechariah dead. And so even that is mercy. But even more than that, God then mercifully disciplines Zechariah by making him mute. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Not discipline just for the sake of punishing. No, discipline that Zechariah might grow in his trust of the Lord. Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's a gracious, loving mercy that's shown in this discipline of Zechariah, where he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness so that it might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Nine months of silence. We don't know if he couldn't hear also. We definitely know that he couldn't talk. That's a difficult trial. 
Especially when you consider that his and Elizabeth's lifelong prayer was now being answered like they're finally going to have a baby and he can't even verbally express any of that joy with any of his friends. But God's discipline always yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So those were nine months that surely he used to silently reflect on the promises that God had given him, the promises that he was now seeing fulfilled before his very eyes. Surely his inability to speak to people led to more time speaking to God in prayer. But now here's the question. How do we know? How do we know that this discipline actually accomplished what it was supposed to? How do we know that the peaceful fruit of righteousness actually came about as a result of Zechariah's nine months of silence? We'll look at verse 64. Immediately, like as soon as he writes, John is his name, in an act of obedience to what Gabriel said earlier, as soon as he does that, his mouth is opened, his tongue loosed. And what does he do? He spoke, blessing God. There's no complaining here. There's no, you guys will not believe this. I couldn't speak for nine months. You know how hard that is? No. You know what Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks? This man's heart had like a nine-month backlog. It's like a a dam that could not hold the water anymore, and his mouth just pours forth what presumably had been just boiling up in his heart for months and months and months. Months in which he saw firsthand God's amazing plan of salvation unfolding right before his own eyes. Like he could not wait to speak of all that God had done. And so his nine months of silence ends with praise for God. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. That's exactly what Zechariah did. Quick side application here. You claim to be a child of God. How often is the praise of God on your lips? Some of you, you might as well have been mute in the last nine months in terms of your praise for God. Like if you had a thousand tongues to sing, it really wouldn't make any difference because the great Redeemer's praise is nowhere to be found on the one you already have. But Zechariah, this guy's like, like Mount Vesuvius, right? He's, he's, he's exploding with praise. And that perhaps was the strongest proof possible that God's merciful, mercy-filled discipline really was for Zechariah's good. So the second picture of God's mercy here in our narrative is God's mercy to Zechariah. And brothers and sisters, let's think for a moment how this picture might apply to our own lives. Speaking now to all of you who are God's children, who are born again, if a pious priest like Zechariah, right, look back at chapter 1, verse 6, he was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Well, if a guy like that can benefit from God's hand of discipline, that he might be more holy, that he might look more like Jesus, well, you and I should not be surprised in the least 
when God uses affliction to refine us. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so all of God's sons and daughters should expect his disciplining hand from time to time. Now, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's not like a fun experience. But can we trust God in the moment that he is working it for our good and our holiness and our joy? And not only to be able to look back like months from now, after God has restored our voice to praise him for it, but in the midst of the affliction, to be able to praise him in the depths of our hearts, in the midst of our trial, so that as soon as God restores our voice, we're bursting forth with praise for his goodness. In the affliction, in the trial, to be able to see it as a kind mercy from God. Mercy not only in the sense that we were not struck dead, as we deserve, but even more than that, that God would care enough about us as his children to discipline us to the end of holiness and happiness. God's mercy to Zechariah. Now, whether those uh, first words out of Zechariah's mouth were the actual Benedictus, like what we have recorded in verses 68 to 79, or maybe that's something that he said shortly afterwards, we don't know. What we do know is that the very first words out of his mouth, after nine months of silence, were words of blessing God. But before we get to the Benedictus itself, look at the response of the people, those neighbors and friends. What is their response? Fear. Verse 65, fear came on all their neighbors. Not fear like they're scared, as much as fear in terms of reverential awe. Like something amazing is happening here. A word spreads through the area, right? And everybody who saw this or, or heard this, this, this miraculous birth to the barren couple, Zechariah's silence, and then God immediately removing that silence and Zechariah's praise pouring forth, So they're all wondering, what's going on here? What then will this child be? God is clearly doing something amazing. The hand of the Lord is with this child. And it's clear, even from the events surrounding his birth, something amazing is happening. And so they all lay it up in their hearts. Reverential awe, fear. Keep that in mind. That's a theme that we're going to come back to over and over again in this gospel. People are constantly being filled with fear, filled with awe because of the amazing things that God is doing. Well, that brings us now to the Benedictus itself. I said this when we talked about the Magnificat. Uh, the reason that it's called the Benedictus is because that happens to be the first word in the Latin translation. So, not super creative, but whatever. Also like the Magnificat, if you just kind of quickly scan your eyes through it, uh, you'll see that it's just saturated with scripture. Like, there's so many references to Old Testament verses. And I want you to notice one more little detail that we might be prone to skip over. Look at verse 67. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So there's a, the trifecta for the family, right? Elizabeth, earlier filled with the Holy Spirit. John, he's been filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And now Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit. So this Benedictus is words from his own heart, but they're also words under the power and influence of God the Holy Spirit. And is that not an awesome testimony to our second picture, right? God's mercy to Zechariah. Like in response to his blatant disbelief, God not only disciplines him so that he might be more holy, but God goes as far as to fill him with the Holy Spirit that he might sing this praise, that it might be written down by Luke so that 2,000 years later, here we are and we are reading these words and rejoicing with him. That is God's mercy to Zechariah. And so we've seen God's mercy all over this passage already, and it's no surprise to us then that this Benedictus itself is also about God's mercy. And so here we have our third picture of God's mercy, and this is the ultimate manifestation of God's mercy. It's God's mercy in the gospel. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Let me stop right there. Uh, That wonderful imagery of God visiting his people, it's one we see throughout the Old Testament. Picture God enthroned in heaven, completely separate from sinners, but caring about sinners to visit them. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him, that, that, that you would visit him? But not only does he visit them, he has visited and redeemed his people. Again, that's Exodus language. The idea of God redeeming his people, delivering his people from bondage. Just like he brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, how's he going to do that? Look at verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. So a horn, a picture, a rhinoceros, a picture, a, a buffalo, a picture, a bull, a powerful animals who, who fight and defeat their enemies with their horns. The horn then is a, a symbol of, of power and a symbol of strength. And that's why the Vikings wore those hats with the, the horns on them. And that's the picture we see used in the Old Testament. For example, look at 1 Samuel 2.10, Hannah's song. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And so you see there how strength and horn are equated, especially in the context of adversaries. The horn refers to strength and so it's no accident that in both Psalm 18.2 and 2 Samuel 22.3, when David refers to the horn of my salvation, he's talking about God. He's talking about the strong warrior who saves him. But now let's think, in this Benedictus, who is the horn of salvation? Who is Zechariah talking about here? God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. That's not John. Zechariah and Elizabeth were from the tribe of Levi. John was not a descendant of David. This is referring to Jesus. 
the son of David, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the horn of salvation that's being raised up. So Zechariah, this is the first time he's talked in nine months. For nine months, he's had the excitement bottled up of knowing that he's finally going to have a son. And what are the first words out of his mouth? It's not words of excitement about the son of his old age. No, it's words of excitement about the son of God who took on human flesh. It's exuberant praise about what God is about to accomplish in redemption and salvation through Jesus. Unless you think that this salvation is something new, look at something that started right here in Luke chapter 1. It's a New Testament thing. Now, Zechariah reminds us how wrong that would be. Verse 70, God spoke of these things through his holy prophets from of old, whether that be Moses or Isaiah or Daniel or Malachi. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. And look at verses 72 and 73. This redemption, this salvation, this is the mercy that was promised to our fathers in the holy covenants that God made with them, even the very oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And so it's always been God's plan to save his elect. But Zechariah, perhaps he's holding his newborn son, this newborn prophet in his arms as he says this, now he sees that the ball is really rolling on God's plan of salvation. You, child. And now he's speaking directly to his newborn son. Look at verse 76. You will be called the prophet of the Most High because you're going to go before the Most High to prepare his ways. And here it is. This is the key, I think, to the whole song. You're going to do it by giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. That's your job, John, to go before Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost. And that salvation, it's not going to be a political salvation. It's not going to be a military salvation. No, it's going to be a salvation that comes through the forgiveness of sins. forgiveness of sins. We said it together this morning. We recited the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Friends, if you think about it, that is our single greatest need, the forgiveness of sins. Because each and every person in this room has a soul that is eternal, and each and every person in this room has sinned against the Holy God. And so as a result of that sin, we're all going to physically die. But even more than that, the Bible says that it is appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. We will be judged. And when we are judged, the God who sees everything and the God who knows everything perfectly, he is going to rightly judge us for every breach of his law, every violation of his law, every sin that we've ever committed. And friends, if we die with our sins unforgiven, we will be condemned to an eternity in hell. But we believe in the forgiveness of sins. 
John went before Jesus to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Then Jesus, our horn of salvation, the strength of our salvation, he accomplished our redemption. He secured our salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Because on the cross, Jesus took upon himself all the sins of his people. He suffered the wrath of God in the place of sinners like us. And in exchange, he gave us his perfect righteous record. So that all who have placed their trust in Christ, who have repented and believed this gospel, we can indeed have our sins forgiven, be made righteous in God's eyes, that we might spend an eternity with him in heaven. Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Because on that cross, right, our horn of salvation, our, our mighty Savior, he does, he does everything that Zechariah mentions here. He saves us from our enemies. He delivers us from the hand of our enemies. He crushes the head of the serpent. He pays for our sin. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he triumphs even over death through his own resurrection so that all of us who are united to him might also live forever. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so I preach to you the same Jesus that John went before that John proclaimed to others so that you too might know this salvation, that you might understand the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, as I look around this room, I know most of you, I don't know all of you, but this one thing I know, whoever you are, wherever you've come from, today you can have your sins forgiven. Stop trying to get right with God on your own. Stop trusting in yourself and your own good works. Instead, place all of your trust in what Christ has done for sinners like you. You too can be saved. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Today, you can have your sins forgiven if you would trust this gospel. But let's get back to the the main theme that we've been focusing on here. Why? Like, why does God save sinners like us? Why does God forgive us our sins? Why would God send his only begotten son, the son whom he loves, and crush him in our place that unworthy sinners like us might have our sins forgiven? Why? The answer is in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. The deep-seated, compassionate tender mercy of our God. So like I said earlier, the the, the clearest picture, the, the ultimate manifestation of the mercy of God towards sinners like us is in the gospel. The third picture of God's mercy from this passage is again the gospel. Now look at how this mercy is described, how this salvation is described in verses 78 and 79. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light 
to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. One of the clearest images that the scriptures give us of our sin, of our sinfulness, is that of darkness. We were people in darkness, hopelessly lost, dead in our sin, without God and without hope in this world. Or as Wesley put it, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. We're trapped in the valley of the shadow of death. We have no means of escape. But in this long, cold, dark night of sin, right? this is the imagery here, the sun begins to rise in the horizon. It brings warmth. It brings light. It brings day. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. So Jesus, I am the light of the world. Jesus, who had no darkness in him, this Jesus visits his people. Not just like a short visit, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He takes on human flesh. He dwells among us. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us so that he might... Colossians 1, deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. And here it is again, the forgiveness of sins. That's exactly what Isaiah was prophesying about. Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness, darkness in their sin, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness On them, light has shone. Okay, what is that light? Who is that light? Look a couple of verses forward. Isaiah 9, 6. You all know this verse. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see that? It's Jesus. The Prince of Peace. Who is our day spring from on high. The Son who was given that we might have the forgiveness of sins. One more thing before I wrap up here. This passage also answers another really important question for us about our salvation. Because yes, in our salvation we are delivered, saved from hell and judgment and wrath and condemnation, death and sin. But what are we saved to? Look again at verses 74 and 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Jesus makes us holy and righteous that we might serve him all of our days. That too is Exodus language. God doesn't just save the Israelites from slavery just to kind of save them from slavery and then leave them on their own. No, he saves them from slavery that they might serve him without fear. Let my people go that they might serve me. Well, in the same way, God doesn't just save us from our slavery to sin and then just leave us there. He saves us from our slavery to sin that we might then be slaves to righteousness. 
that, that we might be his servants, that we might serve him without fear, that we might be a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So as we close, let me just leave you with this thought. Hopefully we have seen very clearly from this text, from this passage, that our God is a merciful God. And that that mercy is most clearly displayed in his saving sinners, right? The forgiveness of sins uh, through the gospel. So those of you who, you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just implore you once again to cry out for this mercy. And this is the, the warning of Romans 2.4. Right? Do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. Right? Just think about all the mercy that God has shown you up to this point in your life, even in allowing you to live and enjoying all the good gifts that you have enjoyed. Well, that's God's mercy. That's God's kindness. But remember that God's mercy and his kindness are meant to lead you to repentance. Repent and believe, and you can be saved today. And for all of you who have placed your trust in Christ, those of you who have been born again, there's probably a couple of things that I could have come up with in terms of things for you to do in response to this sermon. I just think it's fitting that as we think about God's mercy towards us, ultimately his ultimate mercy shown towards us in Christ, not giving us the hell that we deserve, but instead securing us eternal glory through the death and the resurrection of his son. I mean, what, what can we do but rejoice in this great salvation? Like, what are we supposed to do? Just rejoice. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's mercy in all the good gifts that he's given us in life. And God's mercy even in his loving discipline for us. But ultimately, his mercy shown to sinners like us in Christ. And so my only application, really, for you is to rejoice in God's mercy. And join the the prophet Micah. Just wonder, amazement. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. There is no God like him. Truly none like him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are a merciful God. You have shown so much mercy to sinners like us who deserve nothing but death. Father, in the gifts that we've been given, even in the chastisement and discipline we receive, and ultimately in the forgiveness of sins secured by the death and resurrection of your son. Father, we pray that we would be people who would constantly look to your mercy and rejoice in your mercy. And Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet know that mercy, that today would be the day of salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.